Welcome to Service Headline News. I am Marty Smith. And I'm Eric Parrott. And we're here to bring you the latest headlines and updates pertinent to all servicemen and women. So sit back, get informed, and maybe have a laugh as the Swearing It Podcast presents Service Headline News. Eric, it's good to be with you for another week of news. Right on. I'm glad I could be here. Had a little medical procedure. Nothing serious, but no, I'm glad, glad it's over. Glad to be here, man. Yeah, you got the old. Uh, you got the You're old. You're gonna say it, right? <laughs> but it was the uh, the sedative that put you out, right? Man, I could not get the grogginess off me. It kicked my behind. What'd you say was in that sedative they gave you? Oh, uh, you'll love it. It was fentanyl and another drug. <laughs> I thought, yeah. Jesus, and that's a controlled prescription they gave me. I can't imagine what that crap does to someone who's. Doing it unsupervised. Oh, you mean the ones that are dressed up like uh, like sweet tarts? <laughs> exactly. Oh, God bless. Well, I guess uh, I guess they scoped you, so I don't want to give you any premature congratulations that everything was good because I got to look at it, right? No, I was clean as a whistle. Oh, look at, lucky you. A couple years ago, when I did it, they're like, well, we got to go back in. And I was like, God bless it. So, oh, is that right? I had to do the whole thing. And the worst part of that whole procedure, which is a colonoscopy, the worst part of that was, and this, I did it through the VA. So maybe you had a little bit easier doing it through a private hospital, but they get, they send you that big jug of, it tastes like (laughs) seawater. And oh God, trying to get that down. That was what I would have done 10 camera probes versus drinking that nasty stuff god it was terrible well on your next one you won't have to it's 24 pills two doses the first dose the day before in the evening 12 pills over a 40 minute period 316 ounce glasses of water oh the next (laughs) the next morning you start to piece uh, six hours prior to your procedure. You do the second dose, 12 more pills, same thing, three glasses of water, four hours prior, no liquids. And let me tell you what, it's effective. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> but there was okay. no bad tasting. It was just pills. Oh, it's But still the same end result. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and result uh, that was uh, inadvertent, but that's a good joke. So, <laughs> all right, let's roll into uh, this date in history, which was actually, uh, well, as we're recording on the 26th, it was actually on the 25th. Uh, on October 25th, 1944, the first kamikaze suicide pilots attack the U.S. Navy in World War II. So, this is by Carrie Byrne from Fox News, uh, he writes, the escort carrier USS St. Lowe was the first ship targeted by a squadron of about half a dozen kamikazes. Kamikaze suicide planes sent by desperate Imperial Japan screamed down from the skies over Surigao Strait in the Philippines. Uh, I've heard of it. Yeah, so that's where they first attacked. The Japanese Zero fighter planes were stripped down of normal equipment and packed with over 500 pounds of explosives. The damage from the attack was so severe that the St. Lowe sank in just 30 minutes, reported the National World War II Museum. 
Out of 889 crewmen aboard, 134 lost their lives in the first kamikaze attack of World War II. Kamikazes, also on that day, struck American escort carriers USS Callanan Bay, USS Kitkin Bay, USS Santee, USS Suwanee, and USS White Plains. The attacks killed nearly 300 American soldiers and wounded hundreds more on October 25th alone. By the end of World War II in the summer of 1945, about 130 American warships were sunk or damaged by kamikazes. As many as 3,000 U.S. servicemen and women were killed with thousands more wounded. Now, this is what kills me. Listen to this number. About 5,000 Japanese kamikaze pilots killed themselves, according to an estimate by the National Air and Space Museum. So you're thinking Japan's getting low in the war, right? They're running out of men. They're running out of equipment. But somehow they managed 5,000 pilots, 5,000. Yeah, kill themselves. That's that's insane. That's called training a man to get up off the flight line, fly, and not worry about landing. It seems like I read somewhere that those pilots they didn't bother with the landing procedures. They just trained them enough to get the plane up to aim it and fly it into the uh, into yep. the ship. I'm not sure if that's true, but it seems like I read that somewhere. Well, you talk about a true testament to this thing that they call, you know, the divine wind when that's you're right. some kind of samurai and that's going to be a, a warrior's ending. Unbelievable that you'd follow that. Well, I, I mean, that's the, the the fanaticism, right? That's the the yeah. loyalty to the emperor who they considered as a god, I think. Um, you're correct. But, man, I still, to, to yeah. be in the plane, knowing I'm not coming back, I, I just don't I, know about right. that. Right, absolutely. Uh, the name Kamik- the name Kamikaze is you're correct. Translated to divine wind, it's a historical reference in Japan to a typhoon that suddenly destroyed a Mongol fleet in the 13th century and saved the island nation from invasion. So that part I didn't know. So that's interesting. And neither did I, because I actually thought it was tied to, to being a samurai. I thought it was, too. I think there it's, it's muddied, it's confusing, but Hollywood doesn't give us a great definition of that when they want to do a samurai movie, right? So, <laughs> Correct. You know, going back to what you were talking about being fanatical, do you think that the Germans, as they were defending Normandy and the ramps dropped and they're just mowing these guys down, they're like, what a what a how fanatical are these Americans, man? Why would they just walk into you know this kind of thing? Or do you think that we look at Pickett's charge that way? You know, there's like they know they're gonna get killed, yet they're going anyway. Uh I don't know. It's uh it's interesting different perspectives, um, especially when you come from us trying to understand the Japanese. And their fanaticism to the emperor or their loyalty, I guess, loyalty to them, fanaticism to us. Correct. Um, I think for us, those those examples you gave, I really, truly believe, man, it's about protecting and helping the guy next to you. Yeah. If if he's going to go, I'm going to go. Yeah, I agree. And maybe, maybe uh, the kamikazes thought the same thing. They're like, hey, I'm saving our nation by doing this. Yeah. You know? So maybe if you break it down that way, it's like, 
okay, maybe they're not that crazy after all. What yeah, was the guy? What was the guy that had everybody at his church in Guyana or something that they? Oh, drank Jim the Jones. Cake? Jim Jones. Yeah, I guess. I guess you can be brainwashed, for lack of better terms, into doing some really crazy shit. The Taliban's that way, right? Yeah. The Muslim yeah. fighters are that way. You know, it's it's actually uh, when you read some about the uh, Muslim fighters who think that, hey, if I die in the service of my country and fighting the infidels, that's my reward. And that goes to Sparta, right? That goes to the Japanese. That goes to all these guys who are like, oh, that's an honorable death. Yeah. With a little bit get, of a religious religious overtime. You know, when you um, get to that point, yeah, that's hard to beat. You know, when yeah, you get you point. got an enemy that, that that's that committed, you're like, oh yeah, that's. I don't know how you you can't reason with them. <laughs> no, you you get what you get there, man. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, anyway, I, I thought it was interesting um, coincidence that 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 was the day in history because I want to transition into our. First story by using that as a basis. Okay, so the kamikazes, we 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 never encountered. We you, the only choice you got is to shoot them down before they get to you, right? Right. right. Um. So if you if you think about it, now maybe this is a stretch, but here's, this is what I was thinking of in Vietnam. There were terrorists in Saigon, right? With they were. Yep. Explosives in, you know, shoe shine boxes in newspaper stands under their hat. Right. And they were just trying to take out Americans. In Afghanistan, yeah. right? In Afghanistan, they started going, okay, well, how do we make something cheap to kill these guys? And that's where the improved explosive devices came from. Yep. Uh, so, and they were cheap and they were hard to detect. And these guys were good at making them. And they they caused a lot of casualties, probably Absolutely. the majority of our casualties, maybe. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Very few were direct, direct on one on one kind of combat. Yeah, right, right. And I think IEDs caused more damage than anything in that war. So, uh, the natural uh, progression of that, I mean, they're cheap, they're effective. Um, now you look at drone attacks. And on the 18th, right, Russia attacked Kiev with a kamikaze drone. Yep. Quote, unquote. It just filled a drone with explosives and flew, flew a bunch of them. Not not it, just one. There was many of them, right? I believe it was from Iran as well. Didn't I hear that? Yes. And I, and I have that here. Uh, okay. So uh, Reuters reports that Russia launched dozens of kamikaze drones on Ukraine on Monday, October 18th hitting energy infrastructure and killing five people in the capital of Kiev. Ukraine says they are Iranian-made Shahed-136 attack drones, loitering munitions that cruise towards their target before plummeting at velocity and detonating on impact. The drones have a wingspan of two and a half meters and a mass of 200 kilograms, kilograms, carrying a 40-kilogram warhead, and fly at a cruise speed of 120 kilometers an hour so you gotta shoot them down right yeah. it's not incredibly fast but still that's pretty fast yeah right? 120s like 60 70 miles an hour maybe yep uh, yes. 
I'm, I'm thinking about that whole buzz bomb going into 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 England and World oh, War II. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. It's like the the mother of this thing. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, Ukraine says that 85 percent of the drones have been shot down, but still, there's there's you know 15 percent they get through. So yeah, um, Ukraine shot down 51. Shahed-136 drones on October 17th through 18th, and a day earlier, they downed 100. Now, they're going to do drones that are cheap, and you can mass produce them. And then so we're not, we're not yeah. talking about something the size of a predator. Are no, we? these are smaller. 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 Yeah. Two and a half meters, wingspan of two and a half meters. I think predator is much bigger than that. Yeah, it is. So uh, they're not that big. And they're just making a crap load of them, and they're just launching them. Jesus. So uh, now there's a story from Task and Purpose by Max Hopman uh, and Jeff Shogel, published on September 13th. It was back in September 13th. This was before Russia attacked with the kamikaze drones, right? The byline of the story is, the future is here, and it's a swarm of armed drones. Oof. The future of Army training is here, and if you thought that a rotation through the National Training Center at Fort Irwin, which is where all the stateside uh, battalions, divisions go to do maneuver exercises. Uh, okay. So if you thought that was tough before, it now involves fighting off a swarm of 40 armed drones. Brigadier General Curtis T. Taylor, the training center's commander, tweeted a video on September 11th that shows a swarm of 40 quadcopter drones flying through the sky as part of a simulated attack by the 11th Armored Cav Regiment on a unit from the 1st Armored Division. Uh, for those who are listening, I will put this link in the information for the podcast, but they have this video. And so what you're seeing here is the guys who are set up for defense and they're looking up at the sky and there's just all these drones coming. And they're like two feet long. They're small drones. But just 40 drones are all flying overhead. And the camera's just like traversing back and forth like, what are we supposed to do? Right? <laughs> it's kind so, of a stunned state. Kind of a stud state. And this is early morning. You can see the sun coming up, and all of a sudden they just buzzed them with 40 drones. So that's and they're and they're doing that force on force, Americans on Americans, so they can learn from it. So that's good on them for doing that and bringing it up. But it's the video's funny, and I put the link in the uh in the podcast stuff. The the general uh goes on to say. At sunrise this morning, a, swar a swarm of 40 quadcopters, all equipped with cameras, miles gear. You've used miles gear, right? Absolutely. Eric? Yep. Miles gear, lethal and lethal munition capable launched in advance of 11th ACR's attack on a prepared defense by the 1st Armored Division. Drones will be as important in this first battle of the next war as artillery is today. Uh <laughs> The threat posed by enemy drones has come a long way since 2017 when the Islamic State group used cheap, commercially available drones to drop mortar rounds on Iraqi troops during the Battle of Mosul in 2017. 
Since then, U.S. troops in both Iraq and Syria have been attacked by drones. Most of the incidents have been blamed on Iranian-backed militant groups. So <laughs> what alarms me about that whole thing is, in 2017, cheap commercially available drones. Who's the biggest maker of drones in the world? China. Uh, China. Right? Go figure. I mean, who's got that whole cabal of working together, right? Yeah. So, ah, scary, man. So, how do we we defense about it? And this is is what actually gets into the first story. And this is the story. This is from Jared Keller from Task and Purpose on October 21st. The Army is fielding a new proximity round to take out incoming drones. So, the Army has started fielding a new proximity airburst round to its striker force for use against incoming airborne drone threats. It was developed by defense contractor Northrop Grumman and dubbed the XM-1211 High Explosive Proximity, or HEP, cartridge. Each each 30-millimeter round comes outfitted with a tiny radio frequency sensor that detects unmanned aerial systems. It doesn't explain how it does. But it does. But to but to put a sensor in every round, that's that's crazy. Yeah, so what's going to shoot it? What is it? Artillery piece or is it a hand hand carry? Well, this round is intended for use from the M two thirty LF Bushmaster chain gun. That chain gun is, is the the quickest example I can think is it's the one under the Apache. Oh yeah, yeah. So that's the gun, and they and they've adapted that for use on many different platforms. I even saw one video where they put that Bushmaster gun on a like a small remote control tank, and yeah. it's running around with this massive gun on it. It's badass. <laughs> yeah, and that it, that chain gun makes that crazy freaking. No, it's gun. not. It's not the. Uh, it's not the one on the A10. Um, it's more the Apache had one as well. No, the the main gun underneath is it's cyclic. It's not uh, it's not a chain gun. It's boom okay. boom boom, right? Okay. So like a thirty mil. Uh, yeah, absolutely, because that's what the round is. It's a thirty mil round. Uh, the round comes outfitted with a tiny radio frequency sensor that detects unmanned aerial systems and explodes, giving soldiers a better chance of destroying an airborne target. Than relying on a direct hit. And there's videos out there on YouTube as you could see it as the round goes out and it senses and explodes and it's just shrapnel everywhere. <laughs> That's a miniature sized claymore that flies. Kind of, yeah, kind of. Wow. <laughs> so it's intended for use on both the Army's uh, Maneuver Short Range Air Defense or M Shorad striker vehicles. And then the Marine Corps is developing a um a vehicle now this is funny because uh it's a project i don't think the i don't think this vehicle is developed yet but it's called the marine air defense integrated future weapon system and the, you know what the acronym is for that i can't wait <laughs> mattis mattis and isn't mad dog mattis wasn't he the marine yeah Absolutely, Mad so Dog. The Marine Marine Air Defense Integrated Future Weapon System Project is called the Mattis Project. 
It's also going to be used on that vehicle as well. The XM1211 round is well suited to eliminating class one and two drones, which can weigh anywhere from 20 to 250 pounds. So uh, at least they have some countermeasures. Yeah. They're going out that they're pushing out into the field. What do you got next, Eric? So I found a story about the Marine Corps, and it goes back to what we've talked about in the past, where we've seen these studies and these think tanks putting out stuff. Well, this was an article by Hope Hodge Sec out of the Marine Corps Times. And um, it was a first-of-its-kind study of Marine Corps boot camp showing different patterns and muscular skeletal injury rates in training progression for male and female troops. So what they're what it's basically coming down to is they're trying to identify why men and women are getting hurt in, in brew camp and what we can do to, to make it better. So the troop gets through his training or her training and doesn't require a wash back because of an injury. So Marine Corps leaders, however, say they're still considering a way forward as they absorb the study results. So the study was a 739-page study Led, yeah, it's an encyclopedia led by the University of Pittsburgh's Warrior Human Performance Research Center. And it was commissioned by the Marine Corps in a, here we go, $2 million contract in 2020. The study was $2 million. $2 million. And and what gets me, and, and you'll hear some of this, some of the results, they're not surprising. It's not, it's nothing that you couldn't figure out on your own. So the Marine Corps was responding to a new congressional mandate to, a, to adopt a gender integrated training model at both of its re, re, uh, recruit depots. And the study largely focuses on interviews with recruits, new Marines and drill instructors. So they gathered vast troves of biometric data collected from Polar grit X wash watches, saliva samples, what? and thorough tracking logs provide, and it provided unprecedented insights into the physical experience of recruits in the 13 week boot camp training. There you go. Yeah. The data autos also suggests fitness and training differences between male and female units that may lead to desperate outcomes. Researchers, co- researchers collected injury data from the Marine Corps uh, Recruit Depot, Paris Island, South Carolina, for a gender-integrated company male, made of female and male platoons training together in a series track consisting of male and female-owned companies. So you've got three separate males training by themselves, females training by themselves, and then a, a joint group. Okay. So... Data from a male-only recruit company was collected from Marine Corps Recruit Depot, San Diego, which had no female recruits until 2021. So between male and female recruits, certain differences were dramatic. Go figure. Among the 98 female recruits in the series track, nearly 60% sustained at least one injury during training. Among the 95 male recruits, the injury rate was only about 30%. Now, is that surprising? Uh, not really. Not for $2 million. <laughs> but this is what's kind of interesting about this thing. In the integrated company cohort, the injury rate was lower across the board, about 
for the 85 women and 13% of the 106 men. Huh. So it's kind of interesting. It's almost like, oh, there's a girl watching. I can't, I can't say I'm hurt. <laughs> do you think so, that, or do you think that maybe they weren't trying to push them as much? You know, that's a, that's a good possibility. I, I really don't understand the difference. Uh, the male-only company had a reported injury rate of about 14%. While lower body injuries were most common for male and female recruits, by a substantial margin, women in both cohorts reported a higher rate of upper body and torso injuries. So the women's upper body were injured more frequently than the men. Now I would, that's, in, that's in the mixed unit, right? That's correct. But they didn't have that same number of injuries in the female only. Nope. How I read so that? for female so for female recruits in the integrated company, about half the injuries were in the torso, compared to twelve percent for males. Now across the board, the most frequently injured body part for women was the hip, and for men was the knee. Huh. That's all three cohorts. One data point suggests just how many injury rates can be influenced by factors not fully captured by the research team, uh, from fitness prior to boot camp to how a particular series training evolution was conducted. Yeah, huh. uh, there's no surprise. So for women in the series track, 23 injuries, about a quarter of the boot camp total, were sustained during the various parts of the intense concluding exercise known as the crucible. So that's, you know, they that 24-hour period of yeah. very little sleep. And, yeah. Right, right. So for female recruits in the integrated company, zero injuries, zero injuries were sustained during the crucible. How in the hell? How right? So for the study's author, the data shows that injury rates can be mitigated if it's up to the Marine Corps to develop ways. It's just up to Marine, the Marine Corps to develop ways to do that, mitigate it. I, I don't understand how there were no injuries for women in the crucible, but there was 12% for men. Are we trying harder or what? Or are we trying harder to protect? Uh I don't know if many people would agree with that or not, but I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I assume the article doesn't draw those conclusions, right? It, it does not. But no. a reader can say, look, if the guys are still getting injured, but then in the mixed company, what, what did it say? The mixed company, there were zero injuries for females? Zero during the crucible. Yep. How does that work? <laughs> I, I mean, in the women only, there are... 23 or 20, would you say a quarter of the a quarter of the total were hurt? Yeah. Um it was where'd it go? Compared to 12% of males, no, that wasn't it. Um uh, for women in the series tracks, 23 injuries, about a quarter of the boot camp total were sustained during various parts of it. That's the crucible. For female recruits in the integrated company, zero injuries were sustained during the crucible. And, and then their conclusion is that, oh, see, we can mitigate no injuries based on this mixed company going through. I don't know. I, I think that's a false conclusion. Yeah. Well, it goes on. Previous research has shown female military personnel who perform at the same levels of fitness as their male peers can be expected to experience similar levels of injury. 
further investigation of the risk factors for and strategies for prevention of these injuries among female Marine Roar recruits is recommended. So this is starting to look like, instead of the military, we're talking about a business football team. We're going to provide you better food. And that's the outcome that the Marine Corps is looking at. They're looking at different options. So let me read you this this part. Um, As the Marine Corps considers options for optimizing gender integration, recruit performance, and injury data from this study suggests an opportunity to revise the training structure to be more scientifically and psychologically sound to enhance performance, reduce injury, and improve retention during the training process. This can be done without sacrificing the desired stress placed on the recruit to make Marines, as demonstrated by the maintained stress response throughout training, even when the training load was reduced. Instead, proper progression would likely mitigate injury to otherwise very capable recruits. So provide you better food. I I don't know if better weather environments, uh, do it in safer periods of time, not at night. I, you know, I don't don't know. That whole thing screams to me, just make it easier for them. (laughs) That's what that whole thing screams to me. It's just like, look, let's just, let's not make it as hard. So we can keep these guys in and girls in, you know, it just, it, it, I, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, I, obviously there's many more data points that this, in, this article does not point to, but well, I think anybody well, who reads that is like, Oh yeah, that, that mixed company, I bet had it easier for yeah. some reason, you know? Yeah. Well, I love this conclusion too. a focus on proper exercise progression which is often absent in training, according to the study, would improve the outcomes for both female and male recruits. Marine leaders want to keep monitoring. It's almost like the Marines aren't buying into this whole thing yet. Because uh, Colonel Howard Chip Hall, the chief, sta- chief of staff at Training and Education Command and the Marine Corps liaison for the study, said the services human performance branch was now closely examining its findings and determining what training adjustments could be standardized. Marine leaders want to keep monitoring performance matrix through wearable tech and other measures. And Hall said they're especially concerned about making sure the recruit training experience remains standard across the board. Although the existence of the different cohorts and their desperate outcomes shows that training is far from standardized now. Well, there you it's go. Now, yeah, it's now yet clear which study recommend, recommendations the Marine Corps might adopt or when they may do so. This guy, you'll love this. Our plates are pretty full. <laughs> so there's not a timeline, but we're moving as fast as we can towards improving. I see <laughs> I see the guy with the button-up shirt and the clipboard and the and the you know tucked in with the khaki pants and he's like General or Colonel, Colonel, I had the results of that uh, injury study. He's like, I'll get to it when I get to it, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and and it goes back to some of the um, past episodes we've done where money is being spent that our troops are on, you know, all kinds of welfare. But we're going to spend two million dollars on an injury study. Maybe it's data, but I'm not sure I'm buying that. 
You mean the guy standing in line at Wick is reading the Marine Corps Times going, they spent $2 million on this son of a bitch? <laughs> and all I wanted was, you know, 1500 bucks a paycheck? Come I on. I just want some milk. <laughs> oh so, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting article. If our listeners want to read, it was in the Marine Corps Times. And, again, it was by Hope Hedge. What's her name again? Interesting name, by the way. Hope, Hope Hodge Sec, S-E-C-K. Whoa. So there you have it. Okay. Good story, Eric. Uh, I think that's very interesting. Uh, be interesting to see if we have any follow-up on that. Right on. All right. So to end it, let's end it on something lighthearted. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if you remember this video. I I remember the video. Um, but I hadn't watched it, so we're gonna go through it. Um, <laughs> this article is from the Observation Post, which is which is an offshoot of Military Times. Uh, it's by Claire Barrett, and she wrote it on October twentieth. But I'm going to go through the whole article because she is just fantastic in how she writes this article. All right, good. The headline is. The Navy let Cher perform on ship in 1989. It's regretted it ever since. <laughs> That's a great title. I know. It's, it's fantastic. <laughs> so she goes, the USS Missouri has borne witness to some of modern military history's most monumental events. But its role in one affair involving Cher gyrating in a fishnet G-string left the Navy <laughs> blushing over the, quote, Mighty Mo. Nice. In I know, it's so good. In 1945, after the mammoth 45,000-ton battleship helped defeat the Axis powers in hallowed places such as Iwo Jima and Okinawa, Japanese Foreign Minister Mamoru Shigemitsu and his glum-faced delegation surrendered aboard the ship. Remember those famous pictures? with uh, I do. MacArthur. MacArthur was leading the show. In 1950, it was the first American battleship to slice through Korean waters. I didn't realize it served in Korea as well. Nor did I. I thought she was already freaking land yeah. you know, docked. Huh. And, and in 1989, the Navy... Flush with the notion that a singer, songwriter, and actress of Cher's caliber would aid in recruiting numbers, permitted the singer to film the music video of her latest hit, If I Could Turn Back Time, on the storied ship in front of throngs of eager, cheering sailors. The video was oh. an opportunity. This is great. The video was an opportunity for us to get national exposure and reach the lucrative, recruitable youth audience that watch MTV, one Navy <laughs> official told the Washington Post in 1990. One would bet that the Navy wishes it could, quote, turn back time on that decision. <laughs> while, while the Navy had reviewed the music video storyline. Now, this is interesting because I never realized what this song was about. While the Navy had reviewed the music video storyline, Cher's producers had originally proposed a video about a sailor who gets a Dear John letter aboard ship. Okay, that makes sense, right? I right? buy that. I get yeah. it. Whoever approved of the recruiting plan clearly didn't know much about Cher 
and her zany love to dare to bear. (laughs) The Navy had neglected to ask about one critical tidbit. Exactly what or if the the songstress was planning to wear. They assumed, (laughs) and you know how that goes, that she would be sporting a Navy coverall. Instead, instead, at 2 a.m., Cher rolled up to the Mighty Mo wearing what can only be described as two strips of black fabric covering the bare essentials, a black and gold belt holding up approximately nothing, and a transparent net body stocking and two posterior tattoos the size of pancakes, wrote the Los Angeles (laughs) What a description. But the surprises didn't (laughs) stop there. Upon seeing... The massive, stiff guns aboard the battleship, Cher seemingly couldn't help herself and hopped on top. The guns that were once active off the coast of Iwo Jima and Okinawa were suddenly being ridden by a bare-bottom goddess of pop. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, how the mighty had fallen. Um... Quote, one can only imagine how retrospective the Navy brass was to see Cher riding the guns and undulating in front of a sea of 150 real sailors, the Washington Post later wrote of her performance. The Navy wasn't the only one displeased with the performance. MTV initially banned the video from playing on its platform, but later rolled back that policy and aired it only after 9 p.m. (laughs) This is 1989. Right. I didn't know that happened. (laughs) In hopes of placating the Navy, Cher extended an olive branch and filmed portions of the music video with a modicum of more clothing on. There's an edited version of that video. Uh Um, For the Navy, however, it was too little too late. The branch decreed that no musician would ever be allowed to film music videos on U.S. ships ever again well done Cher well done <laughs> <laughs> well done Navy Brass I mean my god <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll put a link to this too but if you haven't seen this damn thing and I hadn't seen it in you it's worth a watch right and the best thing if you watch this is those real Navy guys going bonkers. <laughs> Look at those guys, man. And I, you know what? I probably would have been too. Oh, yeah. Without a doubt. If you had a chance to go see Cher dressed like that, I would have been like, right hey, there, man. We need you to go nuts. I would be like, I am over the moon, baby. Don't worry. <laughs> And if anybody by chance is listening to this podcast and you were on that ship, please give me a call because I would love to interview you. It is a hell of a guys. They're hilarious. There she is. There she is straddling the mighty most gun. Oh, my God. Now, the share's credit. It's good, man. Yeah. yeah it's good. It was back in 
think in the seventies now. So that was probably what late forties, maybe. Yeah, 40s? probably. But the oh, look at this guy <laughs> slide down the ramp. They he probably had to pull him off of her. <laughs> the best is as she's performing, and those who are listening, do yourselves a favor. Go, go watch this video. Look at the officers. The officers have no rhythm. Yeah. Like, what are we doing here? <laughs> no control. <laughs> All they're probably thinking is, if the Admiral sees me enjoying this too much, yeah. I might be in trouble. <laughs> He'd be fired. <laughs> I, you know what? It was definitely a bossy statement on her part, though. I gotta give her that. There's the tattoos on the ass. Yep. Look at that. The size of a pancake. The size of a pancake. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, yeah, do yourself a favor. Go watch. Go watch that video. It'll make you giggle like a schoolgirl. <laughs> what, we, what, what we've what we done in the past comes back to haunt us again. And I'm like, what the hell were we thinking? <laughs> it was funny. The very end of her article says, that's why we can't have nice things. When the Navy banned all that stuff. <laughs> And then she, and then at the very end, her last line was, but at least we still have this. And she embedded a video <laughs> of the village people doing in the Navy. Oh, right. So this is my theory. The 70s, 80s, and early 90s, just, you know, you got village people, you got Cher. Um, you know, oh, I'm you, sure there were others. Yeah, you got CPO Sharky, you got McHale's Navy, you got all that stuff, and so I think the Navy said, "Fuck it, we're going to make good movies," and they came out with Top Gun, uh, Hunt for Red October, Crimson right. Tide. Uh, you know, they just said, "Screw it, we'll never make a bad movie ever again." We're not going to go and lower ourselves again. No, <laughs> all we're going to do is make good stuff, and all the Navy movies are great. They're all great. Right, yeah, now, nowadays, so anyway, yeah, that was that good about doing for this week. I think, Eric, that was good, shit, buddy. Uh, <laughs> on behalf of Mass Sergeant I'd like to thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please leave a like and share the podcast with someone else. Let us know how we did in the comments, and as always, make sure to download the next episode for more service headline news, Eric. It's been a pleasure. I'll see you next week. Ditto, my brother. And hopefully our other two compadres can join. I hope so, too. All right, buddy. Talk to you.